Good morning. It's great to see y'all this morning. Uh, this week, I, I heard a funny story I wanted to share with you. I won't share any names, but uh, a couple of members of our church got a phone call for, that, that said, we have got a time for you to take your COVID vaccine, your first shot. It's Sunday morning. And the, the woman, our, our church member, our friend said, well, but we go to church on Sunday morning. And her husband overheard that and said, we're not going to church this Sunday. We're getting our shot. And so she told him, okay, we'll come. And she's telling me this story. And I said, absolutely, get your shot. We'll, we'll take you back when you, when you come back. Um, I just laughed at that, that idea that, hey, we go to church. No, 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 we don't. Not on that Sunday. So just from your pastor, from your friend, uh, talk to your doctor. Make sure you're, if you're eligible, you're on the list. Uh, let him advise you on when and how and, and get yourself taken care of. We want you around as long as possible. If you're staying home for now uh, because of this virus, we want you back as soon as you feel safe. But we're, we're excited about progress being made. And I, I'm excited to see so many people here this morning. Y'all turn with me to John 13, verse 1. Uh, some of you know that I grew up out in the country, rural Lavaca County, Suburban Yoakum, Texas. Uh, the actual community is called Hope. Hope has a Baptist church and a Methodist church, and there used to be a school in between them, and that's it. Um, so my first pastorate was actually that little Hope Baptist church that I'd grown up in. Went there at the age of 26 to be the pastor of the church, of the people who had raised me. Um, our closest neighbor were a couple named Benny and Elsie. They had known me my whole life. They were members of that church. And Benny was, like all the men in that community, a cattleman, but unlike most of them, he always had some other side business, some other, something else he was doing. And at this particular time in the mid-90s, his, his side hustle at that time was emus. Now, some of you remember, some of you are old enough to remember in the mid-90s when emu was supposed to be the replacement for beef on the American table. How many of you have ever actually had emu meat? Anybody ever tasted emu? Okay. Yeah, that's why emu didn't replace beef, right? So I remember very vividly the day when we realized Benny was getting out of the emu business. This is the country, so you don't outsource that kind of thing. You, you take care of it yourself, which meant it was a very violent day in Hope. It was probably the best hunting day of, of Benny's life. Uh, my wife, my poor lovely, sweet city girl wife had to hear the same sound all day. And it was roughly this, by the way, trigger warning. But then again, we're in Montgomery County. Who am I kidding? Uh, so all day it was boom, 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 flap, 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 boom, boom. And then silence. During which I'm assuming he was cleaning that bird and putting it in his freezer. And then boom, boom, over and over all day long. It was, it was a traumatic day in hope. So at the end of the day, about, you know, 4.30, 5 o'clock, my grandparents, who lived just down the road from us and were also members of the church, were visiting us. We're sitting in the parsonage just enjoying conversation, and we get a phone call, and I answer it, and it's Elsie. And she says, and I quote, I hope you're hungry because I got something for you, and it's hot and ready to eat. And I hung up and I reported what she told me and my grandparents left at that point, went home. And uh, so she brought her food over and we were very relieved to find out it was homemade bread, okay? And while we were enjoying our homemade bread, 
Carrie said, did you notice how fast your grandparents left when they thought we were about to have a plate of emu in front of us? And I said, yeah, I did. I mean, this is a couple that survived the Great Depression. Grandpa fought in World War II. They, they basically lived their life on, off the land, working with their bare hands, tough people. And I know they'd do anything in the world for me except eat emu. On that, on that note, they're like, son, you're on your own. And I laugh about that because... As we talk about loving your neighbor in real life, what does that look like? It takes, it takes certain things that we don't have. We don't just naturally love, love others. That's just not our nature. And as we've seen in this series, it takes confronting the fact that it, at root we're selfish and overcoming that by the power of God. It takes confronting the idols in our hearts and recognizing that we all have things that are more important to us than God is, and we need to put those in their proper place. It takes, it takes the power of God's Holy Spirit that comes into your life the day you accept Christ as your Savior, and you've got to tap into that power and rely on that power so you can become the kind of man or woman that actually loves others. But today we're going to talk about another thing you have to have, and that is perseverance. You have to stick with people through thick and thin, through difficult times, and for the long haul. Proverbs 18.24 says this, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And that's a remarkable statement because in the ancient world, especially in Israel, they were much more family-oriented than we are. In our culture, it's, it's not considered a big deal at all for somebody to say, well, I just don't really have any contact with my family anymore. They're dysfunctional. I've, I've had to go on my own. And, and we hear that and we say, well, that's a tragedy. But, you know, but in the ancient world, you stuck with your family through thick and thin and you were there for them. If, if, if a family member was hurting and you weren't there, that was, a, that, was a, that was a matter of public shame for you. And yet Solomon is saying, there's still friends that are even better than your family. There are still friends you get maybe one or two in your lifetime that you know you trust them even more than you do your own sibling, your own parent, your own, your own child, your own aunt and uncle. And, and what I want us to see today is the story of the ultimate example of a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I want us to see, I want us to see what love looks like when it lasts to the bitter end, to the, through the thick and thin. We're looking at the story of Jesus and the end of his life. John chapter 13, verse one says, now before the end of the, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, some of you know the gospel of John. And so you know that the very next thing that happens is Jesus is in his upper room, in the upper room with his disciples. And he takes off his outer garment and he wraps a towel around his waist and he washes the feet of his disciples. And that's a that's a monumental moment in the life of Christ. And so we think that when it says he loved them to the end, it's referring to that incident, but it's not. See, what you need to understand about the gospel of John, it's different from the other gospels, the other three. The whole end of the gospel, the whole uh, chapters 13 through 21 basically covers the end of Jesus's life. It's not a standard biography in any means. Chapters 13 through 19, those seven chapters alone cover, or six, I don't know, Y'all didn't hire me for math. Uh, those chapters, basically a third of the book, are just the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And so what this verse is saying, he loved them to the end. It's saying to the uttermost, when life got really tough, when it would have been the most easy, the most convenient, the most understandable for Jesus to bail out on his disciples, he stuck with them to the end. He loved them to the end. So what I want to show you is 
Just a, a quick summary of these last chapters of the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 21, and how we see the love of Jesus, his perseverance in love, and, and then what that means for us today. So John, unlike the other three Gospels, doesn't tell us about the Last Supper. He's in the upper room, just like the other three Gospels are, but he never gets to the part where it talks about Jesus handing out the, the Passover meal and saying, this is my body and this is my blood. He just never touches on that. Instead, he's more concerned with the conversations that are taking place around that table, that, that little floor-level table that they're reclining around. For instance, chapter 15, verse 12, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master's doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. See, in that world, it was very common for a teacher to have disciples. Jesus was not the only person who had disciples following him around. Any rabbi who was worth anything had people, had usually men, who had given up their lives to just follow this guy around and listen to him teach. And if you were a disciple, you did not have an equal relationship with your master. You did not call him by his first name. You did not treat him as if he were your buddy. If he was uh, hungry, you went out and you bought him lunch and you brought it back to him, even if you didn't have anything for yourself. If you were staying in a house, you slept on the floor, he slept on the bed. That's the way it worked. But it was never that way with Jesus. From the very beginning, he treated his disciples as if they were more than just students. If they were laying on the floor, he laid on the floor. If they went hungry, he went hungry. He didn't demand lofty titles or any sort of glory. He treated them as friends. And here at the end of his life, he's saying, have you understood what I've been doing? Have you understood that I've been treating you as friends, as, as people who are not my servants, but, but people that I was pouring myself into? In the ancient world, and, and even in our culture up until about 150 years ago, the idea of friendship was much bigger than it is today. Today, we call somebody a friend because we play golf with them or, or because uh, we, you know, we hang out with them on Fridays or because I work with this person and when I see her, my stomach doesn't turn, so she must be a friend. I mean, we use the word friend very casually, but in, in, up in this country and in humanity altogether, aside from the last 150 years or so, friendship was considered a very big deal. You didn't call someone a friend unless they were really important. Just go back and look at letters written in our own country between men and other men who were friends. And you'll, you'll see a man writing to a good friend of his and using language that is so affectionate that it almost makes you embarrassed. We don't use that kind of language except for a romantic partner, right? But in that world, they did because friendship was a big deal. The Greeks had these, these two standards that they used for friendship. This is how you know someone is a true friend. There were two standards for it. Number one was frank speech, or another way to put it is they would tell you everything. A, a true friend would hold nothing back. That means if they needed to say something that would hurt you in order to help you, they would say it. They would take that risk. If they needed to say something that would hurt them or make them look bad, but they needed to share it with you because they didn't want to have any secrets, they would share it. That was a sign of true friendship. And what does Jesus say here? He says, whatever the Father has made known to me, I've made it known to you. I haven't held anything back from you. 
I'm not holding out on you guys. I have let you in on the secrets of heaven. The other standard of true friendship was sacrifice. If you had a true friend, it was, it was your honor to give something up for his sake or for her sake. We know about this when we were, those of us who were married when we were first falling in love, we thought nothing of staying up late when she had to study for a test and helping her study. Or if she lived a long way off, like Carrie lived a long way off from me when we first were dating, I would drive every weekend to see her, even though it beat my beautiful car into the dust. It was okay. It was worth the sacrifice. And yet that's, that's a sign of true friendship, right? When you're willing to sacrifice and you don't even complain about it, you don't even feel used. You feel like I'm glad to do this because you matter to me. What does Jesus say? Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. These disciples hear Jesus saying this and have no idea that he is about to live those words out in very literal fashion. So yeah, perseverance. Perseverance means sharing everything in, on your heart, telling them the truth. It means sacrifice, but it also means other things. Look at, look at verse chapter 18, verse seven. Let me give you the the lead up to this, Jesus gets up after the meal, they get up off the floor and they walk down into the valley, Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and then up the hill that leads to the Mount of Olives and they stop at a little olive grove called Gethsemane where they had stopped many times before to pray. And John, unlike the other three gospels, does not record Jesus's prayers to God and saying, Father, if it's possible, take this cup of suffering away from me. If there's any other way to save humanity, show it to me. John doesn't cover that at all. Instead, he shows us Jesus confronting the mob who comes out to arrest him, led by Judas. And here comes this mob of temple soldiers and other assorted thugs. And you know, they've been walking through the night, carrying their torches and their clubs and their swords, thinking we're gonna have a lot of fun tonight, roughing up this peasant rabbi and his ragtag followers. And they get there. And they say, and Jesus meets them. This is the first shock. He doesn't run. He doesn't hide. He comes to meet them and says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And when he says it, John's the only one that records this. When he says those words, they fall to the ground. All of a sudden their confidence is gone. So chapter 18, verse seven says, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Isn't it interesting? The one who was under arrest turned out to be the one who was in charge. And this man who had all the power, had all the cards in his hand right now, he didn't play one for himself. He used that power to make sure his friends went free. If you're seeking me, here I am, let them go. This is a man who walked on water, fed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch, stilled a storm, raised the dead. You think he could have made short work of that mob of soldiers? Absolutely. Snap of the finger, a wink of an eye, turn them all into chickens, whatever he wanted to do. What does he do instead? Take me. It's my time. Let them go. What did the disciples do? His closest friends in the world, they ran Let's give Peter some credit. He pulled out a sword, chopped off a guy's ear, but that was it. Later that night, John and Peter are 
back at, at the outskirts of Jesus's trial. They don't identify themselves. In fact, when Peter is confronted three times, he says, no, 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 I don't know Jesus. I have no idea who he is. At the cross, Jesus's female followers are there. If you're married, you're probably going to hear about this at lunch. The female followers were there. Where were the male disciples? John shows up at the end, but the others abandon him completely. I want you to think about this for a moment. Remember a few years ago, there was a movie called The Revenant. You probably didn't see it, but it's based on a true story of a, a fur trapper who was attacked by a bear, mauled, left for dead, recovers, finds the people who left him. Now in the movie version, they have to Hollywood it up. So in the movie version, it was one particular guy who abandoned him. And the whole movie, the whole point of the movie is he's got to get well so he can win the Academy. Actually, no, he's got to get well so he can find that guy and kill him. That's the whole plot of the movie. It's all about vengeance. So I want you to look at what happens next. The next time his friends see Jesus face to face. Remember on, e on Easter Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene saw Jesus first. And she came back and told the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And they dismissed her. They said her words seemed like nonsense. You can, you can hear them saying, oh, you know, you know how women are. But this happens later that afternoon. Chapter 20, verse 19. On evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Why do you think he has to say peace be with you? I don't think it's just because it's startling to see a man just suddenly appear in your midst. That was probably part of it. But I think another part of it was those guys were thinking, hey, the last time we saw you, we were running away while you were being arrested. And then you got crucified and we didn't even show up to support you. So have you come to give us what we deserve? Have you come to slap us around, to annihilate us, to torture us, to make us pay? Jesus comes in their midst and says, no, peace. I come to bring you peace. I still love you. I still forgive you. It's not just that night either. There was one of the disciples, Judas has already taken his own life, but one of the disciples wasn't there and that was Thomas. Thomas hears about Jesus being resurrected and says, I can't, I, there's no way. I'm not gonna believe it until I see it. A week later, Jesus comes across Thomas. And does he say to Thomas, what's the matter with you? Are you so thick-headed? You don't think that I have power over the grave after all you've seen in me? Do you really doubt? Can you, can you not believe the testimony of your brothers? No, he doesn't say any of that. He says, Thomas, do you need to touch my hands and see the holes? Do you need to put your fingers in the holes in my feet? Do you need to stick your hand into this wound in my side that hasn't quite closed yet? Because you can do it. I'll let you if that's what it takes for you to believe. And then there's one more person that needs forgiveness, and that's Peter. Because although Peter has seen Christ risen on a couple of occasions, he hasn't had that private conversation with him yet. Peter's the one who feels the most guilt because he's the one who denied Jesus three times. The other ones just ran. And so Jesus approaches him on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. This is in the last chapter, chapter 21. And Jesus says, Peter, let me ask you something. Do you love me? Well, yeah, Lord, of course I love you. Well, then feed my sheep. 
And Jesus asks him again, do you love me? And then a third time, do you love me? And each time he tells him the same thing. Yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, then feed my sheep. Why three times? Because that's how many times Peter denied him. This is Jesus' way of saying, I still love you. You're forgiven. I still have a plan for you. Guys, is this not the greatest news you've heard all day? No matter what you do, once you're a child of God, no matter what you do, no matter how bad you mess up, no matter who you hurt, this whole, this whole church may turn its back on you because we're sinners, we're, we're, we're fickle, we may fail you, but the Lord will continue to love you and will continue to have a plan for you. Even if everyone else says, no, you've gone too far, you haven't gone too far for Jesus, he will stay with you to the end. He is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. So perseverance means forgiveness too. Some years ago, I heard a guy preach named John Randalls. John Randalls is one of the great evangelists of our, uh, of our time. He died a few years ago. But I remember the one time I saw him in person, this was probably around 2000. Um, John Randalls, I'd never heard of him until that day. I was, I was at an evangelism conference and he was speaking on how you reach people today compared to how you used to reach people years ago. That was his topic, how evangelism has changed. Now, I need you to get the picture of John Randalls. He, was, he looked more like somebody who, was, who should be sitting on a Harley than somebody who should be behind a pulpit. He had, he had a beard and glasses and a skullet. You know what a skullet is? That's the hairstyle that's bald on top and shoulder length and back, Right? And so he gets up and he starts talking about how, you know, the, the people who told me about Jesus came of age in this country during the bumper crop of Christianity. He said the post-war years, the 40s and 50s, that's when the ground was fertile for the gospel because people in general trusted the authority of the Bible, even if they hadn't grown up in church, even if they didn't have religious inclinations, they believed that God was real, that Jesus was his son, that the Bible was true. And so all you had to do if you met somebody is say, hey, do you know how to get to heaven? Or, or hey, if you died tonight and you stood before Jesus, what would you say? How, why should he let you into heaven? And, and they would want to know, okay, what do you know that I don't know? And you would share what's in the gospels and they would believe. And so that's how a lot of people got saved during those years. And then during the 60s and 70s, that there was sort of the afterglow of those bumper crop years. And he said, but now we're in a time when the ground's not fertile anymore. It's more like planting wheat in a desert. And it takes a lot more work. It takes a lot more time. He said, now people don't get saved just by a chance encounter with a Christian. He said, it's not really encounters anymore. It's more about relationships. And that's because, because people who get saved now, it's more, it's because they've tried everything else. And nothing else has worked. They've reached the end of their rope. They're in a time of personal crisis. He said when, they, when their time of personal crisis hits, that's when they're open to the gospel. He said, if you want proof, just look at any student ministry in any church. When do kids typically get saved? It's in junior high. Why? Because junior high, those are years of incredible stress. Because the dumbest thing in the world is a seventh grade boy. And the meanest thing in the world is an eighth grade girl. So it's in a time of incredible stress. Those are his words, not mine. Eighth grade girls do not kill me in my sleep. John Randalls is already dead, so you, you can't do anything. But <laughs> his point was this. You and I can't just assume 
that every time we get on an airplane, we're gonna sit next to a person who's an atheist and by the time we land, they're gonna be saved or that every time we knock on someone's door, they're gonna be open to it. Some of you some of you in this room have the gift of evangelism and so you're still able to lead people to Christ who you've met that day and I understand, but that's happening less and less than it used to. And yes, there are still events like Rock the Block or, or like D-Nows and student camps. I mean, John Harper in our own church is an evangelist who goes and speaks at those kinds of events and people get saved. But gone are the days when we could have someone like Billy Graham get up and preach and thousands come to Christ and broadcast on, on, on TV and, and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands write him letters and say, I wanna know Christ. It's just not that kind of territory anymore in our country. Now it's more about you and I being friends with someone for a long, long time and understanding that for a lot of that time, it's going to feel like our friendship with them is not really bearing any fruit. We don't see life change. We don't see transformation. We just see a, a person who there's a give and take in that relationship and it's going to take perseverance. It's going to take, uh, it's going to take hardship at times. It's going to take us telling them the truth and, and loving them and forgiving them. For a long time, there will be no fruit and then the day will come when they will, their world falls apart and they look around and realize, you're the one that's been there for me. You're the one that's been there when no one else was. And I don't know what else to do, so can you tell me what your secret is? And there's your opportunity, and there's your path. See, hopefully by now you know that the vision of our church is to create transforming relationships, to equip you so that you can be that kind of friend to someone else. And our goal, we put a number to it. We said 10,000 transforming relationships. We didn't say 10,000 encounters or 10,000 events or 10,000 conversations or 10,000 random acts of kindness. Those are all fine things. We said 10,000 transforming relationships. I hope you'll be here next week because we're gonna roll out our, our way of counting these relationships. You'll have an opportunity to report. These are the relationships I'm involved in and how we're gonna keep count of them on our goal toward 10,000 by the year 2030. Now, I hope y'all understand something. It's not really about the number. You know, a, a year and a half ago or so when we had our staff retreat, that's a number that we as a staff came up with because it seemed like a, a goal that was a stretch but attainable. But it's not about the number. If we hit 10,000 by 2030, but nobody's life has changed, then it's just been an exercise in futility. On the other hand, if we don't quite reach 10,000, if we reach 8,000 instead, but we see many examples of lives being changed, then God will rejoice and we will too. It's about the people, not the number. It's about the lives that need to be changed. So that's why I've been preaching this series here at the start of this year because it's gonna take actual love from us to those who need it. And like we've seen today, part of that is perseverance, telling the truth. Part of that means sharing that truth when it's hard and we don't want to, confronting them when they're, when they're on, the, on, the, on the slope toward destruction and saying, you need to change, telling them what Christ has done for us when we get the opportunity we look for those opportunities to speak words of life. It also means we sacrifice. Nobody in this room may ever literally lay down their life to rescue somebody else, although some of you might, but all of us are gonna have opportunities to sacrifice to show somebody else they matter. And we should take those opportunities whenever we can. 
And it also means that like Jesus, we forgive them when they let us down. We anticipate the fact that friendship means sometimes being hurt, but continuing to love them even past the hurt. And someday, when that life of that person is hard, that person that we've invested in for all this time, for weeks, for a season of life, for a semester, for decades. Someday when that person hits a time of personal crisis and they look around and see who's there for me and they see us. And we've been there all this time. We've been true to them. We've been sacrificial. That's the day their lives begin to change. We do this. Why? Because Jesus held nothing back in loving us. We do this because he gave everything for us, and it is our honor and our joy to give something back by loving others.